<laughs> the broadcast, the biggest podcast in Vancouver, pretty much. We participate in light misandry. Get out of here with that <laughs> sexism. All of our societal structures are designed in ways to inherently prejudice women. I don't like to be bamboozled. Hi, Georgia. It's Troy Stetcher here. Thank you for labeling me the short king. Vic actually just got the sweatshirt that says Mock Girl Summer. I think it's amazing what you guys are doing. With I'm having a lot of fun. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the broadcast. It's Georgia here with Mallory and Sam. And later, we will be joined by a special guest, the one and only Katie J. Strang, <laughs> which we're very excited for. Um, we're going to start, as usual, with our highs and lows. Uh, low, Arsenal just fucking lost to PSV. Arsenal lost and the Canucks have yet to win a game. We'll I probably would argue that's actually a high. Post. My, my low would actually be if the Canucks win tonight. Yeah. It's Thursday. I, I feel like at this point we've lost so many games. Like winning a game now is just being bad at losing. Like if you're going to lose, set a record. It's really funny. It would be real. It's really funny to see how long they can continue losing. And yeah. I'm going to say that we forgot to do this. We were going to get a lettuce to see if it would do the list trust, <laughs> see if it would. Um, but post the Sabres game, which is when we were going to start, um, Georgia was too much in a huff to go to Costco, I guess, or maybe they were closed. No, I was so, coming back from the hockey game and I was like, I don't want to spend a, uh, whatever, a $7 on an iceberg lettuce. $7? And then I was also like, $7 for iceberg lettuce. What's wrong with Canada? <laughs> Inflation, yo. And then I also didn't realize that I kind of worded it wrong because really it should be who's going to last longer, like Bruce Boudreau or like what will happen faster, like a trade or this iceberg lettuce. Because if the Canucks win, it's like, okay, whatever. I don't know. I should have done it just for the humor of it all. I should have gotten it, put it in like a little Canucks toque, gotten some glasses. <laughs> also, yeah. like there's absolutely, my apartment's like 500 square feet. There's like it, no way the, that I think you should Israel put it outside. Put it on your like balcony so you don't have to worry about the Wind warding in effect. <laughs> it would have blown <laughs> right off the In the head with this iceberg lettuce <laughs> wearing the Canucks hat. Oh my god, that would be that would be unreal. Um, would yeah, you so, be charged? If it uh, hurt yeah, them? because I would be posting about it online, so people would yeah, be able to true. figure out it was me. <laughs> Can you imagine death by iceberg lettuce? That's got to be in the like, what was that show? One thousand worst ways to die or something? Yeah, horrifying. Um. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh. Yeah. I guess our what what is our high. Our high is Connor Bedard. Like, are we, where are we on that? Are we never going to happen? Let, let me check tankathon.com. Let's <laughs> let me see. I just think the Canucks could finish dead last and they still wouldn't win the draft lottery because that is what this franchise is. This is why we are laying the seeds for Eric Lindros. All right. Situation to occur. Simulated lottery. I'm like, yeah, simulated lottery right now on Tankathon gave it to San Jose. So. Oh yeah, San Jose is really bad. Um, San Jose also didn't want to commit to a rebuild, which is very funny, and they probably should have done that. Honestly, because they we don't have good. David Quinn as our coach. That is our high. <laughs> good high. Um, yeah, I don't like. So the Canucks are playing Seattle tonight in like a one-off little road trip, and then they're back to play Pittsburgh. Um, I think Wyatt aren't tweeted that Stanchion or whatever tweeted. I think. Do the Canucks have a worse record than the Grizzlies? Like for opening season Not or yet. are they on their way? They're on their way, I think. Okay. The Grizzlies who notoriously never had a winning season were real bad because of the NBA. The NBA fucked them over. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's kind of funnier if they don't win. And I think that they need to win. And I want them to keep doing like what the Flyers did last year when they would go on like 13 games of losing and then 13 games of winning. It would really be like representation for the girlies who struggle for a month Unhinged. and then are like <laughs> on top of the world for a month, aka me. Um yeah, I guess like I I mean. One of the reasons why it was nice to have Katie on this week is because as we like, there's literally nothing else to say about the Canucks. Like, I don't. Oh, other than we should say, actually, the high of the week was the fact that we were fucking right about the pumpkin patch story. And 
my guy on Reddit, I said this on Twitter, but dude, just write fanfic. <laughs> like, Somebody was like, go write yourself, insert fanfic. Just do go that. Ahead. <laughs> Don't be posting on Reddit. Say, I just want to say, our third ever episode was called How the Wags Killed Bob McKenzie. So if you're going to try, like, we were right about that too. So if you're going to try to, like, write a story, go check, go check, like, the Instagram page of the WAG of the player you're writing about. <laughs> because... That is usually the easiest way to verify. There's absolutely nothing that would come between a wag and posting pumpkin patch content. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They pay for those like outfits to be worn. They have to post content. Natalie Miller's been posting the all yeah, the line change. Any minute gender so. reveal video that was actually like quite cute but intense. Like there was no way she was gonna not post something from the pumpkin patch. Yeah, absolutely. So like learn from your mistake, just go and write fanfic. And like, yeah, I mean, I did have reacting, one but, Oh, I what was one. your high? Uh, my high was Mark Spector, you uniting, uniting all Canucks fans of all stripes and views by trying to blame the start on Elias Pettersson. <laughs> oh my God. Has that man ever said anything about the Canucks that has been coherent? Like, why does he do this? You ever said anything about anyone that's been coherent? That's true. I think last week was Evander Kane is becoming a mature leader. Oh, yeah. didn't And didn't you just write some piece about Connor McDavid being like the new media presence, Connor McDavid? It's like, oh, okay. Her. Absolutely no one wants to hear Connor McDavid speak to the media about literally anything. And like, not even me. And I'm clinically insane about him. That's <laughs> true. That is very true. So you want him to be seen and not heard. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what, that's what one would hope for. Um, so like JT Miller was the one who were like, according to Durant, Durant asked him and he was like, no, that didn't happen. And then he also had a very rational response, which was like, why would one person coming up to me at a pumpkin patch, like change my perception of all Vancouver Canucks fans. <laughs> it's just like one person. And I'm like, you know what? You're right. You make good points sometimes. <laughs> We have to hand it to JT Miller. We have to hand it to JT Miller. He also did score two goals uh, in the last game because guess what? He was not playing center. I will say, I also, I post this question. I think his mustache makes him look like a cartoon villain. It does. But it might just be because he's playing poorly. No, it makes Um, him look like one of the 101 Dalmatians, like villains, like the little henchman. He looks very villainous. but I also think mustaches can like look very cool. So like, obviously everything goes back to him. Hector's mustache is so good. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing my Hector. I know jersey, you're wearing your Hector jersey. Which now I don't know if I should be wearing because Arsenal lost. But also you, literally it does not exist. You've had this problem before. It's just Arsenal being Arsenal. That's true. Uh, and yeah, the girlies are playing soon. Okay, anything else we want to say about the Canucks for this week or the NHL in general? Um, Today is the day to, sorry, this game is the game where if they lose tonight, they have a longer winless streak than the Grizzlies. Incredible. I'm sure they can lose eight games straight later in the season, though. So it's not like this is a must lose for them. No, it's just the start for the start oh. of the season. It's the worst start. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. That's all we have to say about hockey obvious trigger warning for our discussion with katie strang because we're discussing hockey canada stuff we do talk about the arizona coyotes at the end so if you're interested in hearing her thoughts on that organization they're quite interesting um from her perspective reporting on it also we talk about the ottawa senators let's fucking go and our girlies the uh sisters sisters. but if they were really our girlies they would not have batheson on the team so (laughs) okay so with that being said, our interview with Katie Strang is next. Uh, everyone, welcome Katie Strang to the broadcast. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. We've been meaning to have you on for a while. Obviously, we are five months into the Hockey Canada saga. Uh, we've had... Has it been five months? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Feels like yes. so long and then also not long at all with everything that's happened. Um, I think we've had three 
parliamentary hearings or committee mm -hmm. hearings um and the entire board has resigned uh and we've seen i guess with that happening in the last couple of weeks we have seen the kind of initial approach the hockey canada took shifting which was them digging their heels in and claiming that they were going to be the ones to bring about the change and now we know that they're mm -hmm. not uh today there was a recent ipsos poll that stated that 60 percent of canadians believe that there's an issue with sexual violence in hockey culture uh there's massive amounts of people that think the blame is to be put on the people in power seeing this like big shift that's happening we also know the latest is that there is another hearing coming up in less than a month i guess november 15th and we will be seeing bob nicholson and pat mclaughlin they've been subpoenaed by the committee and i guess we should just start with what do you think this hearing or like what do you think the angle of this hearing will be particularly in the wake of what we've kind of seen with the massive changes like this will be the first hearing since everyone's kind of uh mass left <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for some people, they'll like interpret it as the denouement of the action, right? Like that it, it's, it might seem to be rather anticlimactic, given what we've seen in the past. But I will say that like, I was expecting the last round of hearings to be relatively sedate and dry. And I actually thought the last hearing with Michael Brindamore and Andrew Skinner, was like one of the more shocking and like revelatory in terms of like tone and um messaging so which is a good lesson that like you really have no idea what to expect when it comes to hockey canada and how they like are trying to manage this whole situation you know if you talk to people in and around hockey canada people that have been around that organization for years you know they will tell you that you know, yes, Scott Smith, Tom Rennie were appropriate people to call in their current positions. Obviously, they were in positions of influence and authority when the 2018 incident was handled. But if you want to look at a more, you know, broad reaching, like cultural um, snapshot, if you will, of Hockey Canada, then, you know, I think most people sort of consider Bob Nicholson to be the architect of the foundation of this organization in its current iteration, its culture, um, some of the practices and protocols and infrastructure that we've seen in place. And he's got a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge about um, you know, how money comes in, how money is distributed, what the dynamic is in terms of operating and overlapping with, you know, member federations and associations, um, you know, TV rights, partnerships, um, you know, really like from, he's kind of like the modern era um, architect of Hockey Canada. So he has a lot of insight. And I think he's going, he's been a character that has been significantly under scrutinized in this whole saga. I would add another name to that list that I think Scott Salmon, who, um, you know, has long been affiliated as the kind of the chief of men's high performance is a name that will come up a lot as someone that people feel like has been under scrutinized as well, um, just in terms of he's very influential with the men's national teams, including the world junior team. Um, and then Pat McLaughlin is a really interesting name too. He's like, you have to really kind of penetrate the inner bowels, the inner sanctum of Hockey Canada to understand his significance. He's seen as like, I think a bit of a behind the scenes orchestrator, right? But he's another one that I think has, you know, an abundance of institutional knowledge. Um, and I imagine will be asked specifically about like their, strategy of communication, like their crisis communication efforts, the hiring of Navigator. I know Rick Westhead um, mentioned that and some MPs have already asked the question, you know, like how much are you spending on crisis PR? And I would be saying that whatever they're spending on crisis PR, it's entirely too much because it has um, been an unmitigated disaster. Yeah. Yes, to say the least. 
been horrifying. Yeah, it's, it's kind of well to know that they've had a PR advisor given how poorly they've performed. Not only that, but like the the poll questions that they asked through the PR firm, it's like, shouldn't you have considered how that would come across? And the fact that that would have leaked, like. Well, my question is this, is that, is that the advice of Navigator and they're taking it or is Navigator giving them advice and are they eschewing that advice? Because I, I, I'm with you, Sam. Like I was shocked that that would be the strategy. I mean, like it was really fascinating. I thought the last parliamentary hearing was fascinating because, you know, I had been hearing that internally there was like a real shift in terms of like, you know, for a while, I think they were, you know, trying to show some level of like, you know, contrition or remorse, or at least understanding of the severity and the gravity of what was being alleged. And then I think at some point you kind of saw the internal narrative shift where they're like, all right, this feel, it felt like to me that from the inside, they were just feeling like they were the punching bag for MPs to score political points and that they were just getting shit kicked and that they were like, all right, we're hockey people. We're going to dig in here. We're going to drop the gloves and actually like fight back and come out swinging. So I think that's what we saw a little bit with that last parliamentary hearing. Um, I just think that was a terrible approach. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's been continuously shocking, like for a body that claims to be so symbolic of Canada in a way that they're so far away from the Canadian public. Like I just, I think, and particularly with that last hearing and the way they approached it and the comments about the lights going off and the, this is not a hockey problem. We are a scapegoat and all this kind of stuff. It's like, if they, I feel like throughout this whole thing, what you're seeing is just the complete, I mean, we talk about the arrogance, but just the complete separation of like what people are seeing and then what they perceive themselves as and it's so I mean Hetty Fry basically in the last hearing was like I'm continuously shocked by <laughs> the contradictions <laughs> and the inability to answer questions and I think like that's what keeps coming up for me it's like how can you tout yourself as this great institution and you are like so clueless about all of this stuff like it's so it's just so, so shocking that and it's so public I guess in these kind of situations as well well okay so Georgia I feel like you touched on something that's really important which is like this idea of like institutional arrogance and hubris and I think because they've had like a like such an outsized level of influence like in the hockey world and also like kind of Canadian culture for a long time I just don't think that they have often been gut checked by many people I don't think many people have in traditionally in the past been willing to check them and hold them accountable so I think this is like really their first time having to like you know check that institutional arrogance in in realize why there seems to be such significant backlash um with, you know, in such a fundamental disconnect between them and the communities that they serve. And it is like important to remember that, you know, they are, I mean, they're a behemoth, they're wildly successful, they make a shit ton of money, but like the core mission is supposed to be like, you know, promoting hockey in Canada and like, you know, cultivating pipelines and providing access to hockey for communities that wouldn't necessarily get to. And like, no, it's, it's like supposed to be kind of like five to 10% like national teams and international competition. It's really supposed to be about growing the game. Um, and so I do think there's also this like fundamental tension within Hockey Canada of people. I still do think that there are many people inside that building who are just like tireless advocates of that core mission and who got into it for that reason. And who I think are really disheartened by what I think they see as like a shift toward, you know, more like corporate greed and chasing corporate dollars and clout mm -hmm. chasing and seeking accolades and medals. So I think there's been like a real distortion of the original mission. And that's, I think, how Hockey Canada has gotten into some of these problems. 
And I think that's, you know, where there's been some real gaps in terms of self-reflection about how they come across when they interact with the public. Yeah. So we were we were talking about how um, interesting it is that the parliamentary hearings have kind of I think almost united the political parties across Canada. Like there's they've been very united in terms of their approach to to questioning the Hockey Canada witnesses, um, although they've obviously all taken different angles. So it's it, it's interesting in terms of political points because I guess they're all trying to score the same one. They're not actually doing the usual MP thing and kind of belittling each other I we were curious if you were able to be on the committee and to ask questions what are what are some questions you would want to put to the Hockey Canada reps at the next hearing oh that's a great question (laughs) um okay let me ramble on another point that you just made before I come down to my specific questions um so as I'm an American and so, you know, I've watched enough congressional committees and stuff and um, outside of a few, like, you know, there's a lot of grandstanding and like just mudslinging and stuff, um, which I think turns off the general public. I've been really, really impressed um, with, you know, how nonpartisan these are like, right. I mean, this is the one topic that can kind of unify all four parties. It's been fascinating to see how like a parliamentary system works as an American. Um, but I actually have been blown away by how effective their questioning has been. Like if you watch like American congressional committees, there's like a soliloquy before like a question, which is generally not even a very good question. Like Katie Porter, she can crush some like real straightforward questions with her whiteboard. Um, but like for the most part, I feel like it can be very meandering. Whereas I like they've been really effective and to the point in the questions that they're asking to me, like really belies a great level of depth of knowledge of like what they're looking into. Um, and, you know, investigating kind of on their own time. Um, you know, if I'm kind of thinking about it sequentially, like the first one was shocking to me because, you know, they're, they're purporting to not know who these players are. Right. Um, And I think we can all agree that hockey is a very insular world and um, you know, there's to me that is either like, a willful choice to not know, or just such a um, gaping lack of like, it's almost like a deliberate incuriosity, um, which is really striking to me. And it makes me wonder if, you know, there is some, I mean, obviously there's some real concern, I think about legal exposure and culpability. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting then about the second one is they tried to invoke solicitor client privilege about that um, interim report that Hennon Hutchinson did in the 11 recommendations. And one of those recommendations was about service and consumption of alcohol and supervision of minors. And that was one area that I, I can't remember if it was Tom Rennie or Scott Smith, but they like acknowledged in the first one, we fell short there. Like, you know, we fucked up. And when we were doing our reporting on the ground in London, I mean, that was a real central focus of our reporting that like alcohol, like alcohol consumption was a major factor. Lack of supervision was a major factor and things got off the rails, Um, you know, at events like these. And this is not the only one that like we've seen this at, like this is, this has been something that we've reported on time and time again. Um, So this, you know, idea of, you know, legal exposure is interesting to me. I'm very curious. One of the like caches of documents that they subpoenaed or summoned um, was the communication from Hockey Canada to teams. I want to see which teams were made aware of this and how and with what degree of specificity. I mean, we're still very in the dark even now about like how teams are dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Um And then, you know, I mean, I think in a case like this, where it almost always starts like at the beginning with the incident itself, 
and then it'll spiral to the institution. Like it's always about following the money, you know? And so I think any questions um, that involve like following the money it are, are really, really important to ask. I think they've done a pretty good job of that. Um, but I saw that Brian Cairo is not going to be a part of the next hearing, which I was a little bit disappointed about because I still think that there's, you know, a litany of questions that he could answer about the finances that would be revelatory. Just as a, just as a tangent, because something you said triggered something. I've been, um, I was reading some of the affidavits from the Carcillo CHL certification motion, and I was struck by the number of uh, affidavits from CHL team owners and GMs, where they specifically, I don't know if you've read them, uh, there were quite a few where I think the one that really stood out to me, he was, they put in affidavits from GMs who run teams, but also happen to be hockey parents whose sons are in the WHL or the OHL. And uh, a couple of them are like, oh, I spoke to my son about the parties he's been to the team, like, and as the GM and as a parent, they're really well supervised. There's no alcohol. They're actually very tame. And I just sat there and read this and was like, this is a very interesting approach to take. Like, I don't, I don't want to call someone a liar and sworn affidavit evidence, but like, I am very skeptical about these kinds of comments. Well, and even in like some of those affidavits, they're like, oh yeah, no, no. I did that like hot box thing. And it, it was fun. It was like good team building. And it's like, you know, I mean, if that is the mindset that, you know, hazing or initiation rights are like fun and team building, you're on the wrong fucking team. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, that's just like unacceptable. And if you can't understand that in this day and age, like you're not fit to lead a team, you know? And I always go back to like Zadino Chara was always like, we're not doing rookie hazing. We're not, even if it seems like benign, innocuous, stupid shit, like we're not doing it. Like we don't need to do that. Like I, I, th- I just feel like true leaders, like true, like good teammates, they don't need to do that. Yeah. And that's the, I mean, we talk about hockey Canada, but like the CHL, I feel like is this like thing that's looming in the background that they're going to have to confront at some point, because as much as hockey Canada is this kind of overarching body and this situation is allowing these, this scrutiny to take place. Like I know that we saw David Branch, and I can never remember the other people who had the QMJHL and the WHL. (laughs) Um, We saw them, they barely got questioned. But like that, I just keep thinking about all that stuff that's also looming. And I wonder if the Carcillo um, class action, like if that will lead to parliamentary hearings like this, because I feel like we're only at the tip of the iceberg with Hockey Canada. And those MPs have like referenced, you know, yeah. the affidavits. And so, so they're like well aware of that. I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it'd be naive to think that it wouldn't at the very least like prompt some sort of like calls for, you know, oversight or, or what have you, yeah. because it's, you know. That's where these I players mean, are coming from. <laughs> like, yeah, coming up yeah. from these ranks. And it's going to be interesting convergence between, because the next hearing is on November the 15th and the Crisillo certification hearing starts on the 14th and it runs the 14th to the 18th. And I I have to imagine that um, that's going to generate some headlines as well um, because there'll be a lot more focus on oral argument and things like that. For sure. And I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that's been challenging about covering this case um, is that, you know, the, the young woman at the center of it, um, she, which is, I totally understand and is absolutely her right, has chosen to stay anonymous for fear of backlash. And it's easy to see why, um, you know, a young woman would make that choice, right? Um, there's, you know, without going into a dissertation about systemic barriers to reporting and, um, you know, rape culture myths and all that. Um, but, you know, 
sometimes I think it's hard for one of the challenges for us as reporters, I think is sometimes like to humanize an issue um, when you don't have, um, you know, sort of like a, a named defendant or a named plaintiff um, for someone to, you know, it, it is, it is just something different to read something in complaint and to see it. Like, I remember, you know, when I covered the Larry Nasser case, like, you know, I can tell my husband and my therapist what it's like to have a hundred young girls come up and talk about being sexually abused in front of their parents, um, when they're ranging from nine to 18 years old, but it's just something entirely different from a visceral level to see it. Um, and so I think that's been one challenge about this case is that, you know, people don't have a human being like a, a face and a name to kind of focus on, um, not just even from the um, young woman standpoint, but from the unnamed defendants as well. Like it, it's, it's made this almost sort of like amorphous and difficult to humanize. Um, but like what I think the Carcillo case will do is like, you know, Dan, Dan Carcillo and I, and I've covered Dan and have a really good relationship with him, a ton of respect for, you know, how vocal he's been and his outreach and his advocacy. Um, I mean, he will humanize it. Like he is going to talk about his own experience um, and not just, I imagine as a victim, but like how that became cyclical and things that he, you know, he's been pretty open about things that he regrets and, and, you know, reaching out to people that he feels like he didn't treat well as just sort of like perpetuating cycles of abuse. I imagine, um, you know, he's, he's going to talk about Monador. Like it was one of his best friends. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, I think there will be like a real human narrative of that case. And I will be very curious to see like how that impacts um, people's understanding of it and the coverage of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely think that anonymity allows it to like, fall under a concept of like cultural issue as opposed to it being a like specific incident in question so totally and I think um you know I've talked to people even recently who are like you know hockey Canada is obviously like getting you know and being held accountable which is entirely appropriate but I think there is an appetite for like, you know, reporting and accountability efforts to shift toward the actual people involved in the incident. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, as these investigations conclude and more comes out of those, I think it'll be easier to, you know, shift the reporting toward that end. Um, but with unnamed defendants, it's difficult to do until, you know, there's something in the public record, there's, you know, whether there's going to be criminal charges, whether there's going to be supplementary discipline by the league, what have you. Um, I think people are eager to see that element of this story explored too. And I think, you know, we're getting closer to that, I would imagine. Uh, what do you really think have been like the biggest like revelations that have like happened throughout these committees, hearings, or like, I guess like big turning points? Um, throughout them yeah sure okay so i mean one that like they said they don't know who the players are and they didn't require them to take part in the investigation i mean that's uh, pretty feckless if we're being honest um and i you know i think listen there are some ways in which like they did call the police that day like i like i not all organizations would do that like from in terms of you know national governing bodies that i've covered like there are plenty that would just sweep it under the rug and trying to keep it quiet. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not saying that they are not complicit um, in other areas of, you know, not necessarily handling this the best way possible. But, you know, if they had to have one of those things back, I imagine that they would require all players to participate in this investigation and incentivize it to say, you know, your participation in future activities hinges on this. Um, so there's that. Um, I mean, the 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 funds, the funds of like cash reserves were a huge thing, and I and really important and smart like public 
records um, reporting by Grant Robertson and the Globe and Mail um, that, you know, they are subsidizing these like stacks of cash essentially to pay out on uninsured claims off the backs of, you know, participants, which I think, you know, the, the important part of that reporting is, you know, sometimes you get to a level of kind of like reader fatigue on an issue. And if you, if you can't, globalize the story to to answer for the reader why it's relevant to them you 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 know you lose your audience right like you use you it, it's hard to argue for newsworthiness you know if people just feel like you're beating a dead horse um but for that one you know i mean think about all of the members that pay into that fund just by registration fees like in the u.s you know, they've been hiking those fees like more or less every year. And like parents bitch about it every time. Mm-hmm. And it's always like a pretty contentious thing. And so the fact that like, you know, they are taking dollars from hockey families and putting it toward this without those families like knowing about it is pretty egregious. Um, you know, and then I would just say like the institutional arrogance from the last one that you know, that, that they think that like hockey in Canada can't exist without, you know, people in the C-suite or, you know, executive level at the organization, which is just absurd. You know, I mean, those organizations exist like largely because of like volunteers, people at the lower level, grassroots people like doing, you know, pretty tireless and thankless work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those to me were probably like, you know, the biggest revelation. Here's one. Um, Two more, actually. So, I mean, one, the 2003 allegations. Like, that was a bit... Oh, hi. (laughs) Hi, honey. Oh. Very short now. Um, So, like, I mean, one, the 2003 allegations, right, that that showed, like, this is not... This was not an isolated incident. And then, you know, one thing that we reported that I feel like has gotten a little bit, gone a little bit under the radar is, um, you know, we talked to a young woman that was at the bar that night with all those players. And, um, you know, this is not the young woman at the center of the lawsuit, but she said that they were like trying to aggressively ply her with alcohol and get her to come home, not with one, but multiple players on that team Mm -hmm. and being really like kind of aggressive and forceful about it. So, to me, you know, as an investigative reporter, I always tried to discern patterns. And that to me was like a clear indication of like, you know, it seems based on that, that there was like some intent and that like this wasn't an isolated thing. Can you also talk about like a little bit about just the the issues with the London Police Department as well, because isn't wasn't so there's obviously the most recent situation that Rick West mm-hmm. had reported on with the Western hockey player. But then wasn't there also an incident that had taken place prior another with someone else reporting and the police department kind of. That's right. There's a the- there's a young woman um, who is now either a law student or um a lawyer who um, is suing the London Police Department for not handling her allegations of sexual assault um, appropriately. And I'm not sure if this is what prompted this. Um, and I believe that's still being litigated. Um, mm-hmm. But I and I think it was initiated, I want to say in 2017. So it, it's oh, in like God. year four or five of being litigated. Mm-hmm. But Six months prior to, or, or a few months prior to this incident um, in London involving the 2018 team, there was an overhaul with um, the London Police Service because Robin Doolittle, who has done terrific work for the Globe and Mail on um, like sexual assault and how police handle sexual assault in in Canada, she essentially found in that series that the number of like convictions or sexual assault cases that actually like went to trial were just so disproportionately out of whack and underrepresented in London compared to other like, you know, comparable cities of that time or, you know, of that Mm -hmm. size. 
Um, so they, they went to this like model called, I think it's called the Philadelphia model. And I think it's like, you know, trauma informed reporting. It's, you know, really tries to chip away at like a lot of the like sort of rape myths or like rape culture, you know, um, facets of, you know, interviewing, um, people that come forward with stuff like that. So at the time that this allegation surfaced, you know, they were going, going through this huge overhaul of like basically how they did their jobs in responding to calls about this. Wow. Which feels really significant. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much just about London in particular too. Like I think on a couple episodes ago, we talked about particularly London as a junior hockey city is like probably it's probably the most symbolic like junior hockey town in Canada and so there's like there's just so many layers to this story and the fact that this took place there and like the police department and just the whole situation it's just like yeah that was it was it was a really like wild experience to like do on the ground reporting there Mm. um because I feel like it really like forced me to confront like the very sort of things that you're talking about Georgia like um you know it was probably like within a few hours that we got there you know like we're just like kind of hitting the pavement like knocking on doors um and like I heard from people like in you know hockey within like half of a day that they're like oh heard you're making the rounds so like it just goes to show you that like I mean it's a big city but I mean hockey is king there and there's a real like insularity and like there's a level of like I think you know, it's, it's provincial in the sense that like, there's, there's some protectionism. There's like some circling of the wagons. And we felt that like, I mean, there were Mm -hmm. wonderful people who were willing to help for sure. But like, I mean, we definitely were like, wow, people are like, you know, really protecting their own here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not surprising. Yeah. (laughs) No, it wasn't. But it was good to say, like, it was, it was good to see that, like, you know, in real life. Cause I feel like sometimes you kind of need to know what it like sees and like what it actually looks like on the ground to get a sense of like, mm-hmm. you know, context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think you, you've kind of touched on this throughout the questions, but like one of the things that we have always said <laughs> talking about this is that you know, Laura Robinson has been talking about all of this stuff since for like decades, since the mid nineties. And there is like a simmering public awareness of the issues of hockey culture and sexual assaults, because you hear it every time where someone goes, I know of someone who this happened to, or I know someone Mm -hmm. of someone. And then also there have been these publicized cases. I think there's been 13 in total since 1989. Anyone can feel free to correct me. 1989 was the swift current situation. But I guess, like, what is it about this case you think, and this story in particular, that really broke through? Is it the money? Because that, my assumption is money. And then also the, the ties to, you know, the fees and like this kind of like, what is it about this one in particular, particularly when there isn't a face to it that do you think really shifted things? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's probably a confluence of factors. I think it's, um, you know, this is the first time I think we've seen hockey Canada, like face any level of real oversight and accountability. Um, it involves NHL players. So there's like that nexus of like power, wealth, cachet, a claim. Um, you know, I, I think, yes, that like, as you peeled back the layers there, you know, I think there was real evidence of some institutional rot. And I also think just like, I think it's also, you know, a factor of timing, which is, you know, I think there is this, you know, I think you referred to it as like a simmering, like awakening to, some of the cultural issues. And I feel like we're at a bit of an inflection point with that. Um, And so I think from a timing perspective, it was 
it was a bit ripe for something like this to really open up the hood um, on some of those issues that, you know, pervade sports in general, but hockey. We had uh, we had Jessica Luther on a few years ago just to talk about her approach to reporting and especially in the context of the Vancouver Whitecaps scandal. Um, and we had asked her what her approach was when she was running these stories down and telling them. Can you speak to your approach in reporting and how you think about telling these stories? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a really great, we have a really great invest, you know, I work kind of hand in hand with an investigative editor who's an, an incredible investigative report of his own. He won like a Pulitzer at like 26 or something. Um, and so he's, he's, he's really great and creative and he's not a hockey guy, which is really helpful because he helps like, um, put things in context for us in terms of how to make stories accessible to people that aren't entrenched in the hockey community, which I think is really important. Um, and he's like a real structural savant about stories. So it, it's, he's been really good about giving us some sort of unorthodox um, ways to access this story. And, you know, there's been a lot of like daily incremental news with this story and like, no one's been better um, on it than Rick Westhead, who's, you know, broken the story, broken basically every significant facet of the story and just stayed on top relentlessly of the daily news. Um, you know, our, our sort of approach is to try to like, um, hang back a little bit and do deeper dives, which takes some time and can be really frustrating. Um, but to try to like really, you know, paint a picture for people that has some texture and some nuance and some context. So, you know, I, the first big story that we did was just about like the pervasiveness of sexual violence um, in junior hockey. And then, you know, we, our editor was like, go to London and retrace the steps, like recreate the weekend. Um, because, you know, you have had a hard time like humanizing it. So like make it real for the readers, like report with your senses, um, and, and take them there, which I'm not very good at doing. Like, I'm not a great writer. Um, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty aggressive reporter but um that was so wonderful to have like dan raps and dan Robson and ian mendez have been like the most amazing like teammates to tackle this with they've been like so eager and keen and willing um to just like dive in and get like roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty um so and it's really nice because this type of reporting is really isolating can be difficult like emotionally sometimes so it's been wonderful to have like the three of us working on it together but like you know dan is such a like beautiful narrative driven lyrical like writer like he's just a very strong writer and reporter and so you know it was neat to like see kind of his approach to uh, attacking that assignment because it's just um so different from mine and it's something that like I need to learn and get better at um but generally like when I do an investigation like of any real scope like I try to think about it as you know um, a central theme or person um, at the very center and then like kind of think of it as a bullseye and so you kind of want to start on the periphery and like work in concentric circles on like toward the middle toward the nexus um, and I always like try to find like what I kind of call like Sherpas for every story which is people that like you know you don't quote and you don't name them um, and they might not get any glory like in the story itself but they help you sort of like set the landscape so they tell you like who knows who who hates who who's you know aggrieved because of this who's just got a big bonus like who is inclined to help who's inclined to shut their door in your face like those people um are so invaluable in any like story or investigation so like you know one of the first things i do is try to like identify who can be that person on the ground to tell me what i don't know that I need to know to report a story um, effectively. Um, okay, so the next World Juniors is set to take place in two months in Halifax and Moncton. It's the 20th anniversary of 2003. Uh, we obviously know that an incident took place 
there. Do you know what's happening with that situation? Where we're at with that, or is it just still in the no? All end? I know is that you know people have um, been interviewed by um, Hockey Canada, like retained firms to investigate. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, you know, and I've checked in with the police periodically, mm-hmm. and every time they've you know said that this is an open investigation, they're still looking for information. Um, so no, I don't have a ton of information there. I don't know what stage at that or what the status is or what the likelihood is that we're going to see like you know any anything more come of that or whether this is just going to kind of um settle into a a bit of a stalemate where -hmm. they're waiting for more information but you know you never know like I think we've already seen that like you know the young woman in London who filed that lawsuit. Like we've seen other people come forward with other, you know, accounts of abuse and like want to report, you know, because they, you know, saw what she did and realized that like that takes courage and, um, you know, so courage can be contagious. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to predict. And, and, you know, the one thing that I've learned reporting on sexual assault and sexual abuse is it can be a real incremental climb toward um feeling ready to discuss something that painful and private and traumatic so um Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen overnight um and sometimes people come to it very incrementally like some of the stories that i'm like most proud of like you know i got rejected for a long time before and i was really patient before someone decided that they wanted to talk about something Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay um briefly moving away from like hockey canada um, also in your work at the athletic in the past, you've covered the Arizona Coyotes and their toxic work culture and general chaos that seems to be going on in that organization. Uh, tomorrow they're going to play their first game at ASU at Mullet Arena. And we saw their curtain changing rooms and stuff. Can you provide any explanation to why this franchise still exists and how it's surviving? Like what is going on there? Cause we've been spending our time trying to wrap our heads around it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a complicated situation. And what I would say is, you know, I think the recipe for success for any, um, hockey franchise has to be stable, strong, stable ownership and an arena. Mm -hmm. I think those are like the two most, you know, vital factors. And the reality is the coyotes have not had that combination really ever. Um, and so, you know, I, I get frustrated sometimes when I feel like people, um, I try to be very careful never to like joke about the coyotes, although I understand why other people do, but given my like role in the reporting that I've done in the past, I try not to like ever like joke about the coyotes or the arena or, you know, like, even the mm-hmm. video that we saw yesterday for a couple of different reasons, which is, um, you know, there are people in that organization that work their ass off and that really care about that team mm-hmm. um, that want to see it be better. Um, and I think are really constrained by certain factors that are going on there right now. Um, and I think those people deserve better. Um, I think the fans like, really deserve better. You know, I know it's easy to say like, just move the team already, but like, that's a bit reductive and it does, you know, deny the fact that there is like a really robust hockey community there, especially among like girls and young women. Mm. Um, it's like a, you know, a really thriving community that I think absolutely can sustain an NHL team. Um, and, and not just sustain one, but like thrive. And so like, I I just think it needs the requisite components to succeed. It needs to be put in a position to succeed. So when people ask like, why hasn't Gary Bettman um, moved the team? I actually think the more important question is why has Gary Bettman um, not insisted that this organization has the components that it needs to succeed? Mm. And, you know, I think that's, I hope that tomorrow is like, I actually think that, um, 
you know, I think they're going to, I think there will be an, an initial novelty about the arena. Um, and I think it'll be a cool place to watch a game. I really do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I do I think it's NHL caliber? No, I don't. Do I think it's up to NHL standards and fair for NHL players to have to play in there? No, I don't. Do I think it's healthy for like revenue models? No. Do I think it's fair for visiting teams to have to change in what we saw yesterday? No, I do not. It is temporary. But, you know, I think one of the issues that a lot of people have is, you know, the Coyotes have stressed time and time again that it is temporary. And that's and that's true. Um, And it's fair to, you know, address that caveat. But it's not temporary with a slam dunk permanent solution. The Mm -hmm. permanent solution is still up in the air. So, you know, I, I think it is fair to report on that organization critically and honestly. I try not to ever, you know, report on it in a way that's like, you know, making fun or trying to like treat it like a caricature because I, you know, I truly do try to remember at the heart of every story, like there are human beings involved and there are a lot of great people inside the Coyotes. There are a lot of great, like zealous Coyotes fans. Um, And I do believe that both those groups like deserve better than they're getting right now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I really think that they've done like a really great work with especially with Spanish speaking fans and growing the community in specifically like people, Mexican American communities. And I think that that's like something that we should definitely see even more in Southern California, especially, and also other communities in the United States that have a lot of Spanish speaking. Absolutely. Like, again, this goes to the point that like, I I do think that there are the ingredients, Mm -hmm. like there are some really good ingredients for success but you know i do think that there you know there are issues like with the way that ownership runs that team like i mean Mm -hmm. i I feel very confident standing behind my reporting on that yeah um and you know i think we've seen that borne out also in events um and you know they need an arena like they need a permanent solution that you know justifies staying there and i i think that's a real possibility but it's not um a fait accompli yeah and we've seen the dysfunctional ownership like i feel like people just point to arizona as being the only team but like we just went through the eugene melnick situation and that was like also really bad (laughs) and And actually like actually i'm so glad you brought that up because i i actually was thinking about this this morning and I was trying to think of like an analog for Hockey Canada and like the Coyotes situation. And I was thinking about Ottawa and, um, you know, Ottawa, like, you know, we did a deep dive on sort of like the toxic culture within the Ottawa senators. Um, and I, you know, I think it was pretty much universally accepted that Eugene Melnick was a deeply problematic individual and person in power in that was the nexus of a lot of the dysfunction, right? Mm-hmm. But what I give Ottawa a ton of credit for is that, in, and I'm not saying it's like in the wake of this piece, it, it's very likely might be much more driven by the fact that, you know, people who are smart and motivated and talented are now unshackled by this like, you know, dysfunctional presence at the top to really like, you know, run an organization how it should be run. But it really does seem Like there is a level of introspection with that organization that like, you know, we aired a lot of like dirty laundry with that Mm -hmm. organization. And yes, they push back on it, which I expect them to like, look, there's no good. There's no good time to write like a story like that about someone that has just passed away. There's just not. Um, And it's, you know, it's going to hurt some people and it's some people will think of it as like gauche and whatever. That's fine. Um, But. I do feel like there has been a real like shift in that team. And like, you've seen, I think you've seen it internally, like from what I've heard and publicly And like, you know, I know you guys have talked about this before on the pod. Like I do think his daughters are a big part of that too. We are obsessed with them. (laughs) um, So, I mean, here's the thing. Like, you know, I think that I'm, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this too. But like, I think it's easy to just like default to assuming that any like Mm-hmm. child of a billionaire oh. is just like a silver spooner entitled etc in our reporting about ottawa like 
ever, we have not heard a single bad word about those two girls, those two young women. I mean, like, you know, they, people have described them as just like absolutely lovely, but more importantly, like they work hard. Um, and they seem like invested and engaged in, in like the team and the direction of the team. It's like from our reporting, they were like, you know, they were pushing their dad on certain things and they wanted to see him adopt a more progressive stance. And so that to me, like was a really kind of healthy, like shift that we saw. And I'm not saying it's all of them, I think. And I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened had we not written a story. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, I think there are certain people who can now just like operate as they were originally planning without having this sort of like toxic presence at the top. But that to me is an organization that is doing things quite a bit differently from last year and is seeing immediate like positive dividends. Like even look at this week, Daniel Alfredson is back in the fold. Like how great, like they're yeah. like repairing a relationship that is like the lifeblood of, you know, I mean, that's really important to fans. Yeah. So I think that's something really like, they're a really interesting case study to me in like how they navigated a scandal and like some good came of it. Yeah. 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 Does that make sense? Yeah. We're so obsessed with those girls. We want them on the pod. <laughs> we want to talk Fair. to them. Come Fair. talk to us. Yeah. If any, once again, putting out the call, if anyone knows how to get them on, <laughs> send your tips our way. That's fair. I would, I would definitely listen to that pod. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Katie, for coming on. We usually, we're, we always finish our pods with, we do three stars of the week. We each pick. You have been our star before. Yeah. You've so. been our star the first times. Um, so basically we just each pick anything. Like it can be an event. It can be a person. It can be an animal, whatever you want to be your star of the week. We will share ours if you want to think of one because we kind of are throwing. Yeah, you guys right go now. first. Let me. <laughs> and we can share ours. Um, Mallory, who's okay. your star of the week? My star of the week is Lola Bonta. She is um, a midfielder for the Kansas City Current, and she is, which is a parent who are appearing in the NWSL championship match on Saturday. But like the thing that I think is very important about her in general, she's been with this club like she was with fckc when they were in their iteration she also was with the utah royals when they moved to utah and now in this new iteration back to kc with the kansas city current and now she's like made the starting 11 of the like nwsl best players and everything and just she's doing great things i'm very happy and also like if you haven't been keeping up with happy stories in the NWSL like <laughs> most of the thing the Kansas City Current is really one to like follow and is fun because we literally finished the last place in the NWSL last year um and then there's like this new ownership of rebuying it and like also there's just so much money that's like actually like it's such a nice like people actually funding women's sports and believing in them and there's so many like purpose-built facilities and stuff that we're like working on and it's such a great like if you build it, they will come situation, like actually like being like, we're going to put something into supporting women's soccer, as opposed to just being like hoping that it can thrive without any monetary stuff. So yeah, watch Kansas City Current hopefully beat the thorns on Saturday. Fingers crossed. Sam, who's your star yeah. of the week? My star of the week is new NHL Ironman. <laughs> Phil Kessel. That was my star. <laughs> That's a good uh, star. I'm fine. I, I just, I really enjoy the fact that he's basically spent his career making it clear how much he doesn't care. And like, he's, I mean, like, sorry, he cares in his own way, but he doesn't care about the opinions of others. And I really respect him for that. I feel like that's something that is not common enough in NHL players. And I really enjoyed, in particular, the stories coming out in light of him becoming the Iron Man, like the one about him at Biosteel Camp, where he was reading. It says, Kessel is reading. Are you dying to know what magazine it was? Yes. I want to know what magazine. He was reading a magazine while everyone else sweated away. And this player, who prefers to remain anonymous, asked if Kessel was going to bother joining everyone. Kessel replied, want to see what I can do? He proceeded to destroy everyone else in the leg press and went back to the magazine. And okay. I just, 
I love the story about him not liking the taste of water and refusing to drink it. (laughs) (laughs) Which I relate to, actually. Like, not a big water person. (laughs) Same. Um, Georgia. Okay, well, Phil Kessel was my star (laughs) also because it was... I, I, mainly for me, it was the story about how he doesn't like the taste of water, which I think is incredibly, incredibly funny. Uh, I guess I'll give my start to Angela Sterrett, who's been covering the um, situation with the VPD and the Health Soup Nation. Um, if you haven't caught up on that, go see her reporting. It's incredible. She's an incredible reporter. Um, also, like, just a really good follow on Twitter. Um, so that will be, will be my outside the box star this week. Okay, Katie. Who's your star? Um, to Sam's child, um, for not, um, for like being so placid and agreeable. She's I know her sweet name. Girl. I have to say it just because I'm very sensitive about my kids' names, like being out there. So I always try to respect that. Um, look at you, girl, doing great. You're, I love it. Um, and then also a now former teammate of mine. Um, Lindsay Adler, who covered the Yankees for us for years and is now just starting, I think today is her first day starting as a national baseball writer, um, for the wall street journal. Lindsay is incredible. She's got like such a unique eye for like things that are just fascinating about, um, baseball and like, you know, Yankees culture and, um, she's really into art. And so I always like get so thrilled when she can incorporate like elements of her, um, art love into like, it's like a very small Venn diagram of her readership, <laughs> but I'm one of those where she'll like, you know, sometimes drop in like a really obscure art reference in her Yankees copy. And so Love I'm that. looking forward to her doing more of that at the WSJ. That's so cool. Yeah. I just want to say like, because this Katie reminded me of this with her, her pick of a star. Um, I want to say, thank, I've t- texted you this, but I haven't said this to you in person. After I had Sloan, at least we say her name on the podcast. It's okay. Okay. I wasn't sure. Katie has like, reg- I mean, regularly checked in on me to see how I'm doing. And it has been so nice. And like, I just, I want everyone to know that, that like, not only are you an amazing reporter, you're also just an amazing person. Like it's meant a lot to me. It's, you know, you need a tribe. Like it takes a village, man. And I just remember like, it is not easy. Um, and you're crushing it. Like every day I'm just following you on Instagram and seeing all this healthy food that you're <laughs> cooking for your oh my child. God, it's unreal. You're just like mommy. Literally, so hard. Is eating better. I literally. Oh my yeah, god! I like I make her food and then Jeff. I just know. Yeah. <laughs> um, she's gonna have such a sophisticated palate, but it really does like take a village, and we all need to like support each other because it's hard. It's a good thing they're cute because it's really hard. <laughs> yes. All right, Katie. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can reach us. You know. We'll get back to you in three to five business days on our email <laughs> at broadcast.gmail.com. All the other places. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.